Hey Changemaker, this is Julia Wicklander here and I'm so excited to introduce today's episode to you. Um, it is a conversation, a guest that I've wanted to have on this podcast since before I started the Hey Changemaker podcast and um, it's a conversation that really brings transparency into um, the movements that are working against gender equality, human rights and in essence sustainability. My guest today is Neil Datta. Uh, Neil has 15 years of experience in the field of political involvement in population and development. Throughout this period, uh, he has conducted in-depth research on anti-choice activity in Europe, um, as well as anti-gender and everything that comes with it. Um, and he published a report in 2018 that continues to receive worldwide media attention. Um, and beyond these, that report, um, Several other reports have been published um, looking into the anti-rights um, anti movements um, and groups uh, and the funding for those groups um, in Europe. Neil has uh, led the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights since 2004. Um, and Neil founded the organization with a select group of parliamentarians and has been responsible for its growth to its current membership of over 30 all-party parliamentary groups on population and development issues. Our conversation is really about the anti-gender and anti-rights movements in Europe, what they look like, where the funding for them comes from, their growth and development in recent years. The transparency that Neil's research gives us is essential to defending and safeguarding human rights and democracy in Europe and across the world, um, and for pushing for more progressive change for gender equality, human rights, and sustainability. We talk about how sexual and reproductive health and rights really is um, at the core of, of human rights and, and of um, a sustainable world. So here is my conversation with Neil. Welcome, Neil Datta, to the Hey Changemaker podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Neil, I mean, you have years of experience working with um, sexual and reproductive health and rights, rights and freedom within the European Union and, and as well as... A, European parliaments with parliamentarians across the um, the whole region and you've also you were a part of founding um, the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights in 2004. So you have a very long um, history of working with these issues. What brought you to working with sexual and re reproductive rights and freedom in the first place? Was there a moment that you just knew that this was what you needed to do with your career or that you just wanted to see more change? Do you have a story to share or something specific that was sort of the, the starting point for you? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I started out at IPPF, uh, IPPF European Network, so that's the International Planned Parenthood Federation, as, a, as in a position called the Parliamentary Program Coordinator. And, um, and that was way back in 1999. And, um, and I think a few things are important about that time. Um, one is that sexual reproductive health and rights was nowhere nearly as important in Europe not back then as it is now. It was really a very niche issue that not many people were involved in mm -hmm. and um, but it attracted me because it had that element of 
human rights, and especially a very interesting area of human rights, that of sexual reproductive health and rights. And for my work specifically of, of politics and of improving policies and, uh, and laws and, uh, and legal situations. So I like that. And also I, I was raised in the United States and specifically in the part of the United States where there was a lot of contestation about abortion rights. And so I think compared to a lot of other people in Europe, I came from a background where these issues were contested, um, not to the issue, not to the point that they are now today, but already back in the 1980s and 90s, they were. And especially in my hometown in upstate New York, there was one organization that was quite well known back then called Operation Rescue that, um, that protested around uh, abortion clinics. And so I thought this is a, a, this is something I want to get involved in, and this is a way to 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 be involved in this in, in on this issue uh, by joining IPPF. And so that's what I did. It was a I think a combination of my own personal background and the the you know the the complete uh, um, chance that I grew up in the in the United States, plus being in Europe and this possibility opening up. Mm. Yeah, and and it's so interesting because since 2004, um, the European Parliamentary Forum has worked with parliamentarians across European countries. Can you share a little bit more about the mission of the organization that you were a part of, of founding and, and also that you've been at the helm of since then? Yeah, so EPF was created back in 2004. Uh, that's when we became independent. Legally, we were created in, two, in the year 2000. And, um, and specifically back then, the idea was you have to go back to the whole origin of the ICPD, International Conference on Population and Development Process of 1994. And there, there was always a political agenda so that, you know, in order to improve sexual and reproductive health and rights, you would need to improve laws and policies. And so back in 1994, there was already an Asian Parliamentarians Forum on Population and Development. And then soon after, there, there were created parliamentary fora in the Afro-Arab region, in the Americas, um, and then there was only Europe that was missing. So thinking started happening in the year 1999 to create um, uh, an, uh, a European forum to catch up with the other regions. And so that's when, when EPF was born. And the idea was really to uh, create a, a platform where parliamentarians can meet, uh, parliamentarians who want to improve sexual reproductive health and rights, exchange mm. experiences, learn from each other, learn from experts what is needed to advance the whole situation. And also, very frankly, to make sure that there's a cross-party consensus on some of the key issues, because we did not want Europe and other parts of the world to go down the road of the United States, where the political class is very polarized on this issue, where one party is broadly supportive, another one is broadly negative on this. And then whenever you mention the word abortion, everyone in the in, in, in Washington DC goes, goes crazy. And uh, so we wanted to avoid that situation here. And I would say that for a big part of the, the our more than 20 year history, we've been successful at that. Mm. That's very interesting. And I think, I mean, just as you say, I mean, sexual and reproductive health and rights and freedom is really, it's so intimate, but also so political. And I think that that's so, I mean, that's the very 
interesting nature of, of working with these issues. And, and what we've seen in recent years and in recent years in the research that you've been focused on has very much been on sort of the anti-gender and anti-rights movements that have been taking place um, in Europe, especially. Um, uh, but we've seen it across the world, but the research you've done has been focused on Europe. Um, can you share a little bit about sort of any common characteristics or uh, common de denominators that these anti-rights, anti-gender movements or groups uh, that you focused on um, have in Europe? What, what do they look like? I mean, well, first, uh, anti-abortion groups um, have always existed in Europe. And, and usually, if you go back, uh, if you look at them in their historical development, we find that when abortion, when Europe, European countries liberalize their abortion laws, that's usually in the 1970s or early 80s that this has taken place, then shortly thereafter, you find the creation of a so-called pro-life organization. And so you find this in France and Germany and the United Kingdom and all the big countries of Western Europe, you can find that development. And for the better part of the 70s, 80s and 90s, these so-called pro-life organizations existed, but they, they didn't accomplish much. Most they were some sort of nuisance in some contexts, but they, they didn't really stop access to abortion. Then in, uh, then in, in the early 2000s, we started seeing that something different was happening. That the that these that what we thought had been uh, you know uh, <coughs> uh, uh, an area of contestation that had been settled and we can only progress forward now was really coming under increased controversy, and that's because the anti the anti gender organizations were really born in the mid nineteen nineties when the the international community adopted the the International Conference on Population and Development Program of Action in 1994 and Beijing in, on women in 1995. And for them, that was a big defeat. So they organized around this defeat and then started coming out with a strategy for how to neutralize what they felt was a defeat. And that's when we started seeing more modern anti-gender appearing in Europe, which is on the one hand, based on the previous anti-abortion pro-life organizations, but there's some significant new components to it. So that what we're facing now in Europe is a new movement based on the previous one, but with some key features. And some of the key features that we find here are, first of all, transnational networking, so that all of the previous individual pro-life groups uh, across uh, across Europe, now they're internationally connected. They meet, they strategize, and they plan different things, like a modern movement. Another aspect is that they have professionalized. So rather than organizing prayer vigils in front of an abortion clinic or a family planning center or some little protest movement, now they know how policy processes work. So they are able to go into parliament or at the United Nations or at the, in the European Commission or parliament, and they know how that works as much as any human rights lawyer would, and they're able to make their own uh, demands of these institutions, uh, uh, which previously they, they weren't really able to do. And the third component is that they've they have been able to create the capacity to reproduce themselves so that whereas before in the anti-abortion organizations, the leadership was very old and very uh, personalized around certain individuals. 
now we've seen that they've organized advocacy academies, different in institutions to build the capacity of younger generations so that now it's not dependent upon just a few individuals. The, and there's a whole generation of younger people who are able to take on this very ultra-conservative message, which is a new feature of this movement in Europe. And I think for us, working for human rights and sexual reproductive health and rights, women's rights, we need to realize that this is not the same category of actors that we're dealing with in the in 2023 as we were in the 1980s or 90s. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's interesting just um, to hear this and to read the research that you've done. Um, uh, having as a Swede and and add, I had some experience uh, when Sweden was for the previous time um, president of of the U the EU and we were I was at the UN and and then working with SRHR or sexual and reproductive health and rights rights issues. Um, I mean there were actors like. Um, you know, the Vatican or, uh, you know, the Holy See or, you know, other things. But now just to see how there are so many more actors and and they look a little bit differently as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the when it comes to the funding of these groups, I mean, that research that you uh, published uh, called The Tip of the Iceberg um, in 20. 21, right, um, in June, um, was very interesting because it really showed how much money is being put into the, these movements. Mm -hmm. And just over, since 2009, that over 700 million yeah. US dollars has been pushed into funding these anti-gender, anti-rights uh, movements. And um, can you talk a little bit more about sort of where that funding comes from? And, you know, if there was anything in particular that surprised you as when you were doing that research? Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we so uh, we did a report in 2021 called Tip of the Iceberg, and which is the third report that we did on anti-gender organizations. And uh, the first one was, was Restoring the Natural Order, where we explain how the anti-gender organizations are networked across at a European level in, in, in Europe. Uh, then we did another report called Modern Day Crusaders about a subset of anti-gender organizations, uh, very important in Poland nowadays. And uh, the third one is Tip of the Iceberg, which looks specifically at the funding. And that's mainly because uh, after the first two reports that came out, they were saying, Neil, these are very interesting reports, but what about the money? What What's the money behind these things? And th there was not much information about this. So I decided that we would simply take a look at, at the money situation. So what I did is um, we identified a group of 120 anti-gender organizations active in Europe. And by Europe, I mean the big Europe, including Russia. Okay, so, so everyone is, is on the same page about the definitions. Um, so we identified 120 organizations uh, active at national and international level, but all present in some way in Europe. And then we just did the basic thing of tracking down their financials. So their annual reports, their audited accounts, what do they say about them about themselves? And then also what, what appears in the national media? Uh, because what we find, given that we're in Europe, is that a lot of information is there, but it exists in linguistic, national, and cultural silos, so that the French may be familiar with who are the French conservative uh, financiers, 
but aside from the French ones, people in Germany, Belgium, or Sweden may not know about this. Yeah. French financial backers may have European or international ambitions. Um, so this is one handicap that we have in, in, as Europeans. So I decided to do all of this. From the 120 organizations, I was able to track down the financial information for 54 of them. So that's less than the sample size. And from that, I was able to calculate that there's um, uh, 700 million at least going into these organizations over a 10 year period. So 2009 to 2018. Mm -hmm. And then further, when you break that down, you can see the geographic origin of, uh, of that funding. So the first of these is um, the United States, which accounts for approximately 80 million, uh, 80 some million uh, dollars out of the 700 million. Mm. That's, that's not a big surprise. We all assumed that there was a, a US connection. Um, what's interesting there is that the US connection is really concentrated in a few organizations. And these organizations are the ones who are really specialized in litigation. And so um, really taking issues, uh, social issues, and then taking them through a judiciary process before the courts. Mm. And, and let's remember that in the United States, most of the social advances in the United States are not the result of acts of Congress. They are decisions of the US Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, Roe v. Wade, we know what's happened to that since, uh, since then, um, but also equal marriage and going all the way back to the 1960s, even contraception uh, was a decision of the US Supreme Court. So there's a capacity in the United States for litigation on social issues, which we as Europeans, we haven't had to cultivate this, uh, this capacity because it's gone through different processes. And so now we see that these organizations from the US are present in Europe and, uh, and with the 80 some million dollars that they've been spending, we see that it's increased quite a bit. And with that, they have been able to establish a permanent infrastructure in Europe with offices in Brussels, in Vienna, Strasbourg, Geneva, and so if, and if you notice the cities, these are not the capitals of Europe. They're not the most beautiful cities of Europe either. Uh, they're all nice, but uh, they're not. Uh, <laughs> um, but these are all the centers of international institutions and decision making. So you have uh, the EU, the European Court of Human Rights and the United Nations in Geneva and Vienna. That's where they're going. So that's the US one. The second source out of the 700 uh, million was the Russian Federation, which accounts from what we can see of the clean money coming out from the Russian Federation is 188 million. Um, and that is associated primarily with the entities um, founded by two Russian far-right oligarchs, Vladimir Yakunin and Konstantin Malafyeyev. And basically, the idea behind the Russian money is to create a whole system, a whole ecosystem, where they can gradually socialize different types of Western elites onto pro-Russian ideals. And being pro-Russian under for the past 10 years or so has also meant defending a very conservative vision of society and one where Russia is a so-called core state of a Russian Orthodox Christian civilization. And mm -hmm. so, and by doing this, it positions itself as an authentic European country in contrast to the degenerate pro-gay EU 
um, uh, Western Europe, which has lost its way and turned its back on, on real European values, according to them. And so you have a whole set of different think tanks, foundations, media outlets, etc., which involve different Western elites, and then uh, have them gradually agree on two Russian ideas. And so since the, since the Russian aggression in Ukraine, this has taken quite a bit of a hit, but we can still see some of the el <coughs> elites that were associated with these think tanks in Western countries coming out with sort of pro-Russian, pro-Putin uh, positions in relation to the war in Ukraine. Mm. And, and we see this appearing quite regularly on television in Germany, in France, and in Italy, even now. Yeah. Um, uh, another aspect of Russian funding has been dark money going to far-right political parties in Europe, which then these far-right political parties then take positions which are against LGBT rights, against women's rights or abortion rights. And we see this very clearly with the, the links with the, the Rassemblement National in France, La Lega. Um, for example, I myself was at a meeting in St. Petersburg uh, back when it was okay to go to Russia in 2014 or 15. And um, uh, it was meant to be the Eurasian Women's Summit. Uh, and so a big summit of on women. But it was not at all about women's rights, as I saw when, when I was there. Um, it was really about promoting a traditional view of women. And one of the keynote speakers at that time was an Italian parliamentarian from a very small political party called Fratelli d'Italia. And now this woman is, who was a keynote speaker at this Russian event in St. Petersburg, is now prime minister of Italy. It's Giorgia Meloni. Yeah. And so you can see how they've been able to socialize people uh, mm. uh, to this. Um, and sometimes the people may have already been thinking this, but they know it's a minority opinion in their own context. And now they can say these ideas out loud and everyone loves them for them. So it's, uh, it provides uh, uh, that mm. setting as well. Mm. The, the third area of funding, and that's the biggest one, is Europe itself. Out of the 700 million, it's over 430 million that comes from European sources itself, which should not be surprising because we are as affluent as the, as the Americans uh, in, in Europe, and we're more affluent than the Russians. Um, so we have money to devote to these things. And what we find is that um, the anti-gender movement in Europe um, they're able to tap into our own economic and social elites. So we find big corporations uh, or the founders of big corporations or, or influential people within the like big corporations involved in funding these. So that, for example, the founder of um, El, um, El Corte Inglés in Spain, if you've ever been to Spain and you've been to a Spanish department store, you've probably been to El Corte Inglés. And um, they're one of the big sponsors behind one of the anti-gender organizations in, in Spain, which is active uh, internationally. Another subgroup um, is um, uh, Europe's former aristocracy. Uh, we find uh, princes, princesses, duchesses, uh, uh, dukes, uh, duchesses uh, involved in many of these organizations. And in fact, there's a few foundations in Germany based around former aristocrats which fund anti-abortion activism in Germany and around Europe. Um, another source of funding is public sector. So we find that uh, the, that regions, cities, and even uh, governments, uh, uh, states 
fund anti-gender activism in, in various ways. And so the, the source from Europe really accounts for the, for the largest amount. And that's the thing that we need to, we, we probably need to spend a lot more time figuring that one out. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, I mean, just reading the report and hearing you talk about this, because I mean, there are so many linkages between sort of uh, the far right political movements and anti-gender and anti-rights and anti-women. Um, and I think it's just really interesting. And especially now in, in light of what's happened uh, with the recent Swedish election um, in this past year of, of just how a growing far right movement um, is also a very large threat to to all of these these human rights that someone in Sweden has taken for granted for for decades. So I think it's um, it's really really important to to really become transparent about where this funding is coming from and and I think that's yeah I really applaud you for for taking the lead there. Um, and and what also surprised me I think was was looking at the the corporations the the European companies private sector companies that are also like i think fiat was mentioned and carrefour the big um supermarket chain um so a lot of those you know household names um across europe are actually a part of of funding um some of these these movements which is really important for us to know as as the public exactly and um yeah and and again because they for example carrefour the french company and what we found is that, but they're present all over Europe, okay? Yeah. And what we found is that in some countries, it's Carrefour that funds some of the different local anti-abortion uh, or, or anti-gender organizations. And again, because everything is segmented according to uh, different countries and languages, we don't have access to this information as easily in Europe. And so, which has up to now prevented us from, uh, from organizing accountability campaigns, which we should do. Um, the Americans, when, when they encounter a company that funds these types of organizations, they are able to organize an, an accountability campaign, a boycott or a letter or something like this. With us, we didn't even have the information required to do this. Whereas yeah. I, hopefully this is a first step in, in, in doing this. Whether we can change the minds of people, that's another thing. But at least we can, we can raise awareness about this and we can yeah. think twice whether we go to Carrefour or El Corte Inglés or, uh, or, uh, or buy a Fiat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it's it's um, just as important as in the climate movement to to yeah. hold people responsible. Right. Yeah. And we just don't without this knowledge, it's difficult to do. So it's mm -hmm. so important to get that out there. Um, so I, I also like I would also just love to hear your input about um, what you see sort of in terms of, of big tech and social media and, and just those actors being a fuel for these movements. Um, do you have any insight there to share? Yeah, I mean, well, very, very short insight because um, anyone who knows me a bit a bit well will understand that I'm I'm a complete Neanderthal when it comes to technology. Okay, so um, so I, I really am very primitive in, in, in my understanding of this. But um, one thing that I notice is that the anti-gender organizations, because they they're a newer set of organizations. You know, they really we see a whole proliferation of them in the you know in in Europe at least 
uh, what I say doesn't necessarily apply to other parts of the world, but in Europe, we see them really appear 2010, 2012, 2013, and then from then develop. So they're newer than the progressive organizations working in sexual reproductive health and rights for the most part, is that they simply leapfrogged straight into being very adept and uh, comfortable with using new forms of media. Whereas for other organizations, it was, an, it was a, a, sometimes a, a struggle or an adaptation that required careful planning in order to move in that direction, whereas they just went straight in there. And so they, I would say that um, for a certain amount of time, even now, they're probably better organized in that space than the progressive organizations. They feel more comfortable there. And they've been able to exploit it uh, to a much better degree than we have. I mean, there's one organization called, uh, um, well, I won't say their name, but there's one organization <laughs> that's been able to, it was created uh, in, uh, in 2012, 2013, with, uh, with funding sources from all of the different, the, the three sectors that I've mentioned. Um, and they've been able, from, from that small source, they've been, from that short time ago, they've been able to create an online community of almost 20 million people by organizing online petitions where they spam different decision makers with you know, 10, 15, 30,000 similar messages all about a, a, a same message along the lines of you know, tell the UN to stop promoting abortion or tell the EU to vote against this report. So if you're, uh, if you're a politician or if you're someone working you know, just doing your normal job. And then from one day to the next, you get 20, 30,000 messages in your inbox, um, all telling you something, then you think that something is wrong. It, it creates a doubt in your mind as to whether you're doing the right thing. Whereas we've had to actually build awareness saying, well, this, this is where these, organ this is where these uh, emails or these messages are coming from. This is the organization behind it. This is how it is that they're situated. This is who's backing them. And so like this, we're able to, to do this, but they were able to create some harm where we've lost one or two reports in the European Parliament as a result of this, this type of organization. Um, and and that, so that's simply how someone with one organization was able to organize in this new social media space. Um, we've also heard some others about being able to um, do more interesting, uh, explorative things, perhaps with uh, different financial resources, so that uh, the numbers I provided, the 700 million, that's really the most transparent numbers that can be found. Um, and as I already mentioned, um, that's less than half of the sample that I wanted to, because in some countries you, you don't have financial information. Mm. But we also... There's interesting hints that there's ways of providing financial support across borders uh, using different means, such as cryptocurrencies, which some of these organizations have mentioned, which are by definition at the moment not traceable. So I think that's something that we'll need to take a look at uh, in, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's it's incredibly important to really look at and and also holds hold big tech accountable for for sort of the anti-democratic movements that we're seeing and and that are linked to to all of all of what we're talking about today. Yeah. So I think there are very important linkages that we really need to explore um, to to move forward. Yeah, and I, I think one link that really, that also deserves to be explored, and I know that there's some research going into this by other groups, is the link between monetization uh, on these social media platforms 
and hate speech. So that the more clicks you get, uh, the more money you will make and the more you will get more clicks if you're ever more provocative. Mm. And there's some interesting research done by some groups that have shown that in some countries, we've seen sort of religious uh, religious uh, actors realize this and then whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, it's not too sure which one, but they've realized that by being becoming ever more provocative in their sermons or in their in their discourses, they're able to reach more people and then also this generates more income for them and, and their religious organization. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really something so important to um, to look into further. Um, so what do you think? I mean, what do you think are the most important steps that we can take uh, to safeguard human rights, democracy, sexual and reproductive rights and freedoms um, in Europe? And as as you say, I mean, with the international ties across the world. Yeah, well, maybe just to tie up on the social media thing, I think one mm-hmm. thing that needs to be explored is really um, is really building in some measure of accountability, because yeah. a lot of what's happening now, free speech is used to justify this. And, and that's, you know, what, you know, I get free speech. But at the same time, free speech does not mean that you're not accountable for what you say. Yeah. And I think it's this lack, it's this missing accountability piece that we need to explore a bit further. Mm. Then when we talk about anti-gender overall, I think there's a few things that we, we really need to explore. I mean, one is, is simply the realization that we're confronted with a new force in our societies, and this force is not going to go away. It's not the same one as the anti-abortion organizations of the 1980s and 90s. It's a new thing, which is much more professional and has real political ambitions, and they're strategic. So I think that's one that's one thing we really need to 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 identify, and that there's really no country in Europe that's spared. Um, uh, there, a couple of years ago. Uh, some good colleagues of mine, uh, David Paternot and Roman Kuhar, had written an academic uh, book on at, called um, Anti-Gender Mobilizations in Europe, or Anti-Gender Campaigns in Europe, which looked at over 13 countries and compared you know, the, the different anti-gender mobilizations. They never even bothered looking at any Nordic country back then because nothing was happening. Mm. Whereas now, we would have to say we need to we would need to have a chapter on Sweden. We need to take a look at what's happening in Denmark, which is taking a, a very different route. Things are happening in Norway and uh, and 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 uh, Finland as well. So, uh, and this is a new development of the past five years, I would say, in, in what's happening in Nordic countries. So, if it can hit those countries, just like uh, just like others, it can go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so this first realization. A second thing is is what it is. What what can we do? And the things that we can do should be informed by what we know of what these organizations want to achieve. So that we know that one of the things that they want to achieve is to access positions of power. They're looking for legitimacy. And so this is why they're asking for different status at the United Nations. So UN ECOSOC status, they're looking for it to be accredited at the Council of Europe, at the European Union. They want to be seen as respectable by, uh, by national parliamentarians and governments. And if they get that UN ECOSOC status, then they can come to Stockholm or they can come to The Hague or Brussels or Paris and say, look, we're recognized by the UN, we're very credible. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think we need to see if uh, they actually meet 
the charters or the statutes of those organizations in terms of respect for human rights and respect for democracy. We already know of one organization, perhaps another one, who had requested such a status from the Council of Europe. And once the Council of Europe uh, officials were briefed about who this organization is, that status was denied. Mm. Okay, so we know that that doing that can can actually work and simply explaining to people who are these organizations what have they said before for example on 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 gay conversion therapy or on abortion or on women's rights um so already really just holding them accountable to their own track record is is Mm. one thing that we can do Another thing that we can do is take a look is now that we have an understanding of the funding behind them and what I provided was in tip of the iceberg was really just the first foundation of what their funding base is like, we should look into trying to limit access to funding to these organizations, you know, why is it that some of them are benefiting from state funding? Mm. Um, Why, you know, or, or or organize accountability campaigns? And similarly, we should look into promoting and providing funding towards progressive organizations, especially in some parts of Europe, which have been starved of funding, especially yeah. since they joined EU, the, the European Union, uh, most of them in, in 2004. So that there is a relationship between the growth of anti-human rights organizations, particularly in Eastern Europe, with the entry into the EU and when uh, when uh, the new member states entered the EU, all the civil society groups in those countries became ineligible for international funding from the Swedish government, from the British, the French, the German government. And so I think that's something that we need to take a look at as well. And what what an unintended consequence of EU membership has been for civil society, in especially in Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, and, and then, I mean, there's a, a certain number of other things that we can do. We know their strategies, okay? Like this petitions organizations, the, this petition organization that I mentioned. So when we know that there's something coming up, we can brief the different policymakers and civil society and, and media about what is likely to happen so that like this, it doesn't necessarily scare anyone. Um, I, I, the way I explain it is usually um, imagine that you have a magician in front of you If you in advance are explained how the magician will perform his or her trick, then when the magician performs the trick, it loses most of the magic. You know exactly where the dove is hidden. It doesn't come as a surprise that, you know, uh, that the dove comes out or that something appears or disappears. So I think these are some very practical things that we can do, but it requires a certain study of the anti-gender organizations and then uh, a way of delivering this in such a way so that it's understandable to what well, decision makers, but I would say media, civil society, and also society at large, so that they realize what's happening as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's difficult without without the knowledge. So I think uh, I really appreciate that, and um, just from my personal experience. Um, when uh, preparing a team for uh, a media team for the the latest ICPD conference in Nairobi, um, the International Conference on Population yeah. Development, there were we had several sort of uh, cross uh, NGO cross media conversations about sort of the the anti rights and the pushback uh, against the ICPD, um, and I think it's it's just many of us didn't have as much insight as as to you know. Um, 
what what would come up in the media, what would be published against to sort of discredit the ICPD, but also to discredit those uh, who are working mm -hmm. for human rights. Um, so I think it's just really important to have this knowledge beforehand um, mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, go in stronger and stand tall and really, you know, dare to um, to continue uh, despite sort of the threatening uh, situations that that one may find, you know, themselves in um, in the future. So um, I agree. I think that's it's incredibly important um, to get public awareness and also within civil society as well. Yeah, and I mean, and what you've just described there, it, it speaks to the point that we need to be prepared personally yeah. when we are confronted with an anti-gender actor, how should we behave and how should we not behave? Uh, and for One very good example is to realize that we will never convince an anti-gender actor that their position is not right. Uh, what we need to be thinking more is um, when we're in a public setting is addressing to the public making sure that we get our messages out right and making sure that our messages are understandable to a lay public. Yeah. Um, and making sure that we, we don't fall into a certain series of traps that they have been trained to lay for us, uh, talking, for example, using their own words to describe certain things. Uh, so I think that those are certain, those are certain very practical things that we can uh, be prepared, we can train ourselves to do. And then there's more structural elements about how to deal with this anti-gender movement in a more medium to long term. So as you know, so for, so for example, as, so as to make sure that they're not, so that some of them are not necessarily given access, privileged access to decision making when they don't respect the values of the, of the institution that they're seeking to influence. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, um, just to going back to our conversation about social media is also that uh, to realize that a lot of us are speaking to our own sort of our own community and it's very siloed because of all the algorithms and because of how it works yeah. so really being um you know getting out of our comfort zone and moving into spaces where perhaps we're not you know only in that siloed uh community can be really important um to to start sort of moving um elsewhere and and moving into other other spaces as well exactly yes and i mean and i and i think that's important to 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 point out what you've just said is important to uh, to, to emphasize because when we take a look at the positions that we defend the right to abortion, the right to women's uh, autonomy, the, the right for young people to make their own choices, the LGBT rights, the right to sexuality education, to access contraception. These are all very mainstream positions that are shared by the broad majority of Europeans today. It's not a tiny left-wing marginal position. We are the mainstream. So I think really remembering this and, and reminding ourselves how to communicate this to a lay public to the broad mainstream, not just to our own microcosm of a community. And that, uh, and that the real microcosm is really the anti-gender organizations, which usually have to find different, uh, I would say almost deceitful ways in order to advance their own uh, policy positions without telling the, the actual truth of what they actually want. That yeah. at the end, what they want is um, a very inegalitarian society um, where some people have more rights than others. And then broadly, human rights and democracy are not fully respected. They're not able to communicate this. So they have to find different subterfuges to, to do this. Whereas, uh, so I think 
already realizing that we are the mainstream and we are the the vast majority of, of people is should be reassuring. It is reassuring, and I was just going to say that. Thank you so much for for reassuring me, Neil. I mean, it's it's a, a conversation that we're having. Is it can be frightening to listen to. It can be you know scary to hear about sort of all of the developments that are happening. And um, so this is of course very reassuring. Um, so what advice would you have for for young change makers who are either looking to build a career to strengthen sexual and reproductive health and rights, um, or you know, or the just um, you know, work to uh, to safeguard these rights in their own communities, countries, uh, regions, and, and even the world. What what advice would you have? Yeah, I would say to really realize that sexual reproductive health and rights is one of the main angles for undermining liberal democracy around Europe and the world today. And so if if we so we can take a look at it from two angles. Some of us will be very passionate about sexual reproductive health and rights. Some of us more about democracy, liberal democracy, rule of law. But the two of them should be married. And by by building this much bigger alliance, I think we can we will stand a better way of resisting and in fact moving forward. And we should use the energy that the anti-gender um, challenges uh, bring about in us really to move forward. So that, I mean, now, I mean, based here in Brussels, we're already thinking about the EU elections for 2024. And there's already a number of different suggestions floating around for how can we better protect abortion rights and sexual reproductive health and rights in the EU treaties themselves. It was President Macron who suggested put inserting abortion as a right in the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. This would never have happened had it not been for the challenges for the anti-gender. We realize that now our rights are in danger. We need to find a better way of protecting them. And so using that energy in order to be better protect our rights is, is what I would suggest we do. Mm. Thank you so much. I feel energized and, and really um, reassured despite all of the, the great challenges that we face. And I'm <laughs> really, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you speaking with me and sharing all your wisdom with our global community today. Thank you. It's been great being with you. <laughs>
So I encourage you to share this podcast with a friend or two, uh, colleagues um, that may enjoy it too. And until next time, I just want to remind you how important you are and how much I appreciate you. Thank you for being here, Changemaker. See you next week.